0: This is KJZZ News, your listener supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vian, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of January 23rd, 2023, here are some top stories. We're familiar with first responders, but what about last responders? Maybe you're thinking of funeral workers or hospice providers. But as Kathy Ritchie recently learned, last responders also include those who investigate the thousands of unexplained, sometimes violent deaths that occur in Maricopa County each
1: year. This is a story about a team of women from the Maricopa County Medical Examiner's Office who confront death daily. Hi, my name is Emily Sprague. I am a medical legal death investigator with the office. But this story isn't unfolding at a crime scene. My name is Tawanda Batiste. I am a forensic technician. Or in the county morgue.
2: My name is Irma Cortez. I'm the family advocate with the medical examiner's office. We're sitting around a conference table. My name is Amy Rex. I'm the administrative director for the office of the medical examiner. So a totally unassuming setting. But what these women do, well,
1: it's nothing like you've seen on Law & Order. It's not for everybody. Well, we are the ones that nobody want to, oh, how was your day? Oh, wait, no, not you. Nobody wants to hear about our day (laughs) at the dinner table. That's Tawanda Batiste. Because the work they do is centered around mostly traumatic deaths, and it can be both physically and emotionally grueling. As an investigator, I can take sometimes up to five scene calls a day. That's Emily Sprague, the investigator. And a scene call? is a crime scene and then i'm not sitting back down at my desk till seven thirty eight. where she wraps up her reports uploads her photos it's just wild that we go from scene to scene and they're each different scenes too crisscrossing the county yeah so i could be in chandler and then next thing you know i'm going all the way to peoria from there the case goes to batiste I assist the doctors in exams administratively, as well as evisceration. That's the autopsy part, where the body is opened and organs are removed. Photos, fingerprinting, and several other uh, things that we do in exams and protocols for the final walkthrough and the reports and the cause of death to be determined. The same time that's happening... Irma Cortez comes into the picture. She serves as a bridge between the investigative team and the decedent's family.
2: It can be a little draining, full of sadness, speaking to people that like you said, this is it can be the worst day of their life just because of the types of deaths that are investigated here.
1: Which are unexpected and often violent.
2: But I'm able to speak to these families and at least provide a little bit of clarity as to what happens here because it can be very confusing.
1: And there's so much going on behind the scenes that most of us don't even know about.
2: It's the harder ones where they say, I don't understand. Why don't you have an answer after the autopsy? Or why do I have to wait this much time to find out, you know, what happened?
1: So like Batiste said earlier, this job is not for everyone. These cases can be grim, especially those involving children. Tears
2: are definitely part of it.
1: That's Amy Rex.
2: Not that I see it a lot, but it's also not unusual to to see tears around the office. I think you can just notice somebody's demeanor changes. They completely withdraw.
1: So the medical examiner's office has made vicarious trauma and attention to compassion fatigue a priority. The other part of it is simply HR101 employee retention.
2: There is one medical examiner in Maricopa County. One medical examiner's office. This is this is the staff. I can't tell Emily and her and her staff. It's okay for you to not go to work for 3 days as you as you go through it because who's going to do their job?
1: So there's this tension. How do you give people the ability to step back and process while ensuring you have sufficient staffing to investigate the thousands of cases that come through this office each year? You can't. Brex remembers a time when a single jurisdiction in the county
2: tragically lost four children in a weekend. And they were able to take their officers out of the field. They put them on desk work. They had counselors for them. They did everything for them, she says, as they should. It was traumatic. Still, I'm sitting here thinking, my staff saw those four kiddo cases from that jurisdiction and probably 15 more that weekend. Mm -hmm. And, and there's, there's not the, um, recognition of, of what we do here. Besides
1: staffing, the job itself can be a barrier to getting outside help. Because of the intensity of the work,
2: well, it's more than even some therapists can handle. You have to be very careful about the people that you talk to about it because you can end up traumatizing the person that you're, that you're going to for help. So it means the county has had to find ways to create internal support systems for these last responders so
1: they can continue to answer the questions and provide families with whatever closure they can. Kathy Ritchie, KJZZ News, Phoenix. Find part two of this story on our website, kjzz.org. In
0: Fronteras news, a new app from Customs and Border Protection gives asylum seekers waiting at the U.S.-Mexico border the chance to ask for an exception to Title 42 restrictions on asylum. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick reports, human rights activists have long pointed out that restricting asylum at the border goes against U.S. and international law.
3: Nonetheless, Title 42 has been used to keep tens of thousands of asylum seekers from entering the US and beginning their cases. The only way to bypass the protocol at a port of entry is through a humanitarian exception. Normally that's done through a lawyer, but this month Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas announced a new process.
4: This can be done on one smartphone with an app called CBP1. The app is designed to discourage individuals from congregating near the border and creating unsafe conditions.
3: Because Title 42 is in place, the border is still largely closed to asylum claims. For months, asylum seekers hoping to enter the US on an emergency basis would enter a waiting list to start the process with lawyers working along the border. CBP-1 is now the only way families can get an appointment. Asylum seekers download the app, create a profile, and fill out biographical information to make an appointment at the Board of Entry. Bonnie Ariano with CBP in Tucson, says the Nogales port of entry is one of eight ports border-wide, now using the CBP-1 function. This really helps people to, to do these things themselves, and, and I believe that it's a safer, more secure, more organized way of, of, of doing these exceptions. Ariano says port officers in Nogales were already taking exception request appointments. But the process could take months, and it was only really accessible with the help of pro bono lawyers in Nogales, like Chelsea Sacco with the Florence Immigrant and Refugee Rights Project.
2: You don't have to rely on a third party for for help, um, necessarily. And, and so it is providing more individuals with access to... Trying to get an appointment spot.
3: Still, SACO warns the app is no substitute for an actual asylum process, and that's not possible as long as Title 42 exists. The protocol is in place indefinitely right now, as two separate cases over its future play out in federal court. Meanwhile, SACO says CBP 1 has its own problems. It's only available in English and Spanish, and it doesn't work on all smartphones. In Nogales, she says appointment slots fill up within a few minutes each morning.
2: And every single day they're being denied appointments. You know, from the safety of the U.S., you can think, oh, it's just an appointment. There'll be another one. But what's really at stake for these families are their children's livelihood and well-being.
3: That's what Hilda Vasquez, an asylum seeker from Guatemala, was facing just a few days ago. She told me she came to Nogales with her two young daughters after fleeing an abusive relationship with their father back home. When I met her at an aid center there in December, two deep purple scars marked her face, where she said he burned her with a cigarette and cut her with a knife. He hit me many times even wanted to kill me, she told me. She hoped to ask for asylum in the U.S. and join her sister in Colorado. But, like thousands of others, she was blocked because of Title 42. But this month, she was able to get an exemption through CBP-1. I reached her by phone in Colorado. She told me in the weeks leading up to their appointment, her daughter's father had gotten a hold of her phone number and was looking for them in Nogales.
5: Y cuando when the appointment it was a relief, la, cita, pues, fue un alivio, la verdad. When the appointment arrived,
3: truly, it was a relief, she says. It was like a window. She says they were constantly scared he could find them, especially waiting in Mexico. She feels safer now with her family. But like thousands of others waiting for their cases, she says she knows her journey has only just gotten started. Alisa Resnick,
0: KJZZ News, Tucson. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss Podcast. In Business News, the Phoenix area has been one of the fastest growing metros in the country for years, with people and businesses moving here and development sprouting up valley wide. But at the same time, the region is facing a water shortage as Colorado River supplies decline and leaders look for new potential sources. Those two issues would not seem to go well together, so how do leaders allow for growth while making sure there's enough water to meet increased demand? Mark Brody reports.
4: Cities make lots of calculations when it comes to economic development, and for Sarah Porter, there's one that's applicable here.
1: For years and years, I think there hasn't been a lot of thinking in terms of what is the return per million gallons of water or per gallon of water.
4: Porter is director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at ASU's Morrison Institute for Public Policy. And that return she's talking about is jobs and how many of them a project will deliver for the amount of water it'll use. Cities think about this differently. It's why some may prioritize golf courses and other tourism-related industries, while others seek out high-tech manufacturing plants, for example.
1: Looking at the return in terms of, you know, well-paying jobs per gallon, you know, you can see why a semiconductor plant, you know, looks desirable for a community and why a community might decide that it's worth committing a chunk of their water portfolio to a
2: semiconductor fabrication plant.
4: That's the approach Chandler has taken. The city's economic development director, Micah Miranda, says Chandler has chosen to pursue projects involving advanced manufacturing, think Intel, and healthcare, including pharmaceutical manufacturing. We, we do have those honest and upfront conversations with users, high water users that don't align with our economic development goals and community goals. And we just have to be upfront and say, hey, what you're looking to do doesn't fit within the city of Chandler or our water resource capacity. So we'll just take a pass on those projects. But those projects that Chandler says no thanks to could find a home in a different valley city with a different economic development plan. In Buckeye, officials prioritize advanced manufacturing, logistics and energy companies. Susie Boyles, that city's economic development director, says Buckeye is less than 20 percent built out and predicts it'll be growing for the next hundred years.
6: So the decisions we're making today with respects to the types of industries we're attracting will either help or hinder us in the long run and so we can be very successful and bring in jobs to meet the needs of our community um, without trading off that water demand that we will need um, as the community continues to grow
4: buckeye though is now dealing with the news of a recently released report from the state department of water resources it shows an area of the west valley including buckeye is short of the required hundred-year assured water supply to build new homes In a statement, the city says every home or business currently developed in Buckeye has a 100-year assured water supply. Tony Lydon, part of the industrial logistics supply team at commercial real estate firm JLL in Phoenix, says most of the companies with whom he works have relatively small water needs, e-commerce, logistics, and distribution-type operators. But that's not always the case, and he has had a city say essentially, sorry, no, you use too much water to locate here.
6: I had had a project with a global iconic bottler and we actually opened escrow on the site. And at the end of the end of the day, our water consumption was just too great for that particular community. And so we needed to scrap that candidate site and go find another property.
4: There's also the thought that new development can actually save water, that newer buildings are more water-efficient than older ones. In that case, the question becomes less about approving new projects, but rather making sure they're the right kinds of projects. That's one of the considerations economic development directors are thinking about. Chandler's Micah Miranda says when his city first put its water allocation policy in place in 2015, there was a lot of skepticism. But he says since then, it's led to a lot more leads for prospective projects. If you're going to invest millions, potentially tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars in a project, you want to make sure the community you're investing in can serve all of your needs, and in this case, specifically water needs. Miranda says Chandler tries to be thoughtful about bringing in new water users at the expense of current ones. It's just part of a balancing act city leaders have to do, trying to make sure neither economic development opportunities nor water supplies dry up. Mark Brody, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: In education news, the Arizona House Education Committee advanced a bill Tuesday that would allow school boards to terminate a superintendent's contract for violating board policy. Those contracts could also be cut short if one or more schools in the district receive a D or F letter grade for at least three years. From our education desk, Bridget Dowd reports.
1: The bill would prevent those superintendents from seeking damages or being paid out for the remainder of their contracts. The bill's sponsor, Republican David Cook, says while school boards adopt new policies each year, superintendent contracts last three years. During a committee meeting Tuesday, he brought up a conversation he had with a former legislator.
6: This Democrat person that I work great with when they're down here said, You know, the day before I was sworn in on my school board, the previous board voted, and I think it was $2 million that they paid out to a superintendent's contract.
1: Cook says the new board was left trying to figure out how to pay its new superintendent. Mark Barnes with the Arizona school administrators spoke against the bill.
4: The A through F system doesn't measure progress or improvement from a point in time. We wish it did. We tried to get it to look more like that, but it doesn't look like that. It is a summative letter grade that the superintendent has only a minor amount of control over.
1: Some committee members had similar concerns, but voted yes with the understanding that they'd like to tweak some of the bill's language. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. One small valley community is struggling with access to water. Here's the show's co-host Lauren Gilger with a deeper dive.
7: Residents of Rio Verde Foothills received another blow over the weekend in their fight to obtain water from the city of Scottsdale. The unincorporated community sits outside Scottsdale city limits and has been left without water since the city turned off its taps at the beginning of the year, a move it had warned residents was coming. They had sought an injunction from the court to make Scottsdale temporarily provide water to the community via private haulers, arguing the people there are in crisis and couldn't wait. But a Maricopa County Superior Court Court judge sided with the city, marking a win for Scottsdale as it has faced growing pressure from residents and lawmakers to turn the taps for Rio Verde back on. Here to tell us what the judge had to say and what's next for this community is Sasha Hubka, who's been covering the the saga for the Arizona Republic. Good morning, Sasha. Good morning, and thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you coming on. I want to begin with this most recent ruling for the city of Scottsdale that just kind
5: of came down in the last couple of days. What exactly
7: did the judge say here? Why?
5: So yes, as you mentioned, we did we got a ruling over the weekend and the lawsuit, as you had said, requested this injunction that would have forced Scottsdale to continue supplying water to a standpipe near the Rio Verde foothills community that private water haulers have used for years. The judge denied that request and essentially said that this issue isn't for the courts to decide. Uh, The judge believed that it should be in the hands of governmental entities.
7: Yeah. I want to back up and give a little context here for a moment, talk about kind of how we got here. Like, so Rio Verde, as I said, is an unincorporated part of Maricopa County. It's not within Scottsdale city limits. How did Scottsdale become part of this discussion?
5: So Rio Verde foothills is a classic example of what's known as wildcat subdivisions. Essentially, a lot of parcels of land up there were divided four or maybe five times to create new lots with homes. And since they weren't divided up a lot, they weren't considered official subdivisions and they didn't have to prove a hundred year water supply. At the same time, the aquifer isn't super stable up there. So some houses have working wells and others don't. And for those without working wells, this wasn't a huge deal, deal until recently because private haulers could get water from Scottsdale from that standpipe. They just paid them for that service. Mm-hmm. But After years of warning that they wouldn't provide water forever, Scottsdale turned off the taps at the start of the year, and that's where the trouble started. And since then, the city has been under quite a bit of pressure from both residents and other politicians involved with this issue to turn the water back on.
7: Yeah, absolutely. So at the same time the city's been under this pressure they have been pointing to Maricopa County for solutions since it falls in their ju- jurisdiction, but Maricopa County supervisors including supervisor Tom Galvin who, you know, is over that district voted against creating a water taxing district that could have been a solution
5: there. Why? So essentially, there were two solutions on the table for this community. The first one was that water taxing district, which, as you noted, Galvin voted against. And he did that after overseeing months of discussion between neighbors who couldn't come to a consensus. Uh, Galvin said in his decision that he didn't feel this was a full community solution. He had concerns about uh, the longevity of of a water taxing district. And at the same time, he pointed to another potential solution, which is a plan with private water company EPCOR. Mm -hmm. The problem is that EPCOR is a utility company and in arizona that means that it's overseen by the corporation commission so in order to serve the rio verde foothills community and find a source of water for them epcor first has to go through that corporation commission process and so galvin thought epcor was a better plan but the corporation commission process takes time Mm -hmm. and even once they're approved if they're approved epcor has said that it could be two to three years before they can actually provide water on the ground, you know, near the community for them to use. So
7: it's this sort of short-term, more short-term at least, solution that the residents in Rio Verde are looking for right now.
5: Exactly. And the problem is really that a lot of that seemingly needs to come from Scottsdale. The situation right now is that since Scottsdale turned off the taps, these residents can still get some water from the haulers because haulers can use other municipal sources. They can go to Glendale or Apache Junction, for instance, um, and get water from them. But those sources are unstable. They cannot provide as much water as Scottsdale could, and they can stop providing water at any time. Mm. And since the water hauling trucks have to go farther for the water, the prices have skyrocketed. I mean, I have some residents telling me that their water bills have tripled,
7: tripled. Well, what's Scottsdale Mayor David Ortega have to say about all of this? He's, you know, been at the center a lot of uh, of a lot of this and has been pretty obstinate.
5: Yes. Yeah, so Mayor Ortega has been very firm um, that he's a hard no mm-hmm. on doing much of anything to help the Rio Verde Foothills residents. Uh, He's backing all of that up by pointing to drought on the Colorado and to the city's tier one water restrictions, saying he has to prioritize Scottsdale residents in a drought environment. Uh, He also says that Scottsdale officials warned the community well in advance that the taps were going to get turned off eventually. And he's kind of blamed residents for not doing more to find a solution before the deadline. Mm -hmm. The city has taken the stance that They even won't take water purchased by the residents from other sources and process it, treat it, and send it to the community, even for a fee, because he says that water hauling trucks use Scottsdale's roads and in doing so disrupt Scottsdale communities. The other side of this from residents, though, is that even though they're on unincorporated county land and they're not within city boundaries, they live right on the border of Scottsdale, literally just a few miles down the road. Hmm. And They do all of their work, school and shopping there, and they say that Scottsdale can be the hero of the story if they just help the community get out of this crisis. Do you see
7: this, Sasha, as sort of a test case of what's to come in sort of the the battles over water as Arizona continues to develop?
5: In many ways, yes. Rio Verde foothills isn't unique being a wildcat subdivision. Um, There are lots of others out there, both across Maricopa County and across the state. And as we see drought restrictions start to come into play and as cities begin to have to implement their um, drought plans and go into that tier one phase and into the tier two and possibly into the tier three, we're going to see that cities are going to start to tighten their water use. And so a lot of what happens in this case, such as with this lawsuit, really impacts, you know, what the situation could be for other communities like this down the road. In this case, a judge has said Scottsdale, they're not going to force Scottsdale to turn back on the water. Mm -hmm. You know, that likely means that then that sets a precedent. And so down the road, if there's another community fighting with a different city to get their water turned back on, it it likely means that the water won't be. Um, And so these communities will have to find solutions.
7: All right, we'll have to leave it there. Sasha Hubka with the Arizona Republic with the latest on Rio Verde. Thank you for coming on, Sasha. Appreciate it. Thank you. And finally, in science news, from our
0: Arizona Science Desk, here's Nicholas Gerbis.
6: Despite recommendations by the CDC and the state health department, Arizonans, including many long-term care staff and residents, are largely skipping the COVID bivalent booster. But the shot does provide extra protection, even against some of the latest variants. Vaccines do not defend equally well against all the subvariants of a virus, and the Omicron variant has an extensive family tree. Concerned that bivalent boosters might not protect as well against the XBB and Kraken Omicron offshoots now dominating in the U.S., the CDC analyzed the latest year's worth of data from a COVID testing program. They found the bivalent booster, which comprises components of original SARS-CoV-2 and two other Omicron lineages, still offers added protection against symptomatic infection for at least three months. That holds true across age groups, regardless of whether people previously received two, three, or four vaccine doses. Nicholas Gerbus, KJZZ News, Phoenix.